I'd like to welcome everyone to the Pacific Institute's Kitchen Table. The intent of the Kitchen Table is to provide a platform where we are able to share and discuss the dynamic world of cognitive science and the specific role it plays in performance. I'd like to introduce our co-hosts, Greg Coughlin and Ron Medved from the Pacific Institute. They have over four decades of experience working with hundreds of organizations on applying cognitive psychology and science. Pull up a chair, let's get started. I think the bias, would you say, Ron, is that, I mean, we started in the world of cognitive psychology, but I think, you know, because of the continual research, the continual aspiration to continue to learn, you know, that, that cognitive science doesn't contain us as much as it used to, that I'd really broaden it to the topics of the kitchen table will really lean further into a broader category of cognitive science and into how do, how do those things add up to performance? Mm-hmm. How do we make a difference in terms of happiness or well-being or balance or profitability or, or elite or the zone? Or, so, you know, I'm biased, at least in this conversation, to our purpose at the kitchen table is to create a format for dialogue and, and conversation, but with a higher purpose of uh, authentically finding new insights and, and ideals and, and vision from that. Let me pause there. What do you react to that or what do you think about that? Does that match? Well, what, what, what comes to mind to me, Greg, I, I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's important to be able to uh, bring everything into a focus and, and, and bring, bring this wonderful field of study into a focus that's practical. And, and like you said before, we're social entrepreneurs. We're, we're, we're not a nonprofit organization. You know, we need to organize this, our information in a way that makes a profit, and we need to stand shoulder to shoulder with our clients who, who for the most part, I mean, most of them are, are profit-making organizations. Uh, for me personally, Greg, you know, I, when, I, uh, when I met Lou and I met the Pacific Institute, you know, I was uh, – you know, I was much more spread out in terms of my own thinking. I mean, I was, I was into all different kinds of metaphysics and philosophy and consciousness studies and psychology, <laughs> uh, of course. Um, but one of the things that I discovered uh, through my process was uh, I really like to go to conferences and I really like to go and visit other institutes, which I did a lot, you know, in, in my first 10 years with the Institute, especially, I, I really tried to get to know the, the humanistic psychology community. And I spent a lot of time in the yeah, other, other, other institutes, but I, I discovered that for me personally, my own calling was, was to keep coming back to this, this field of cognitive psychology mm. and the translating of that into sort of application uh, mm. uh, be, because there was a certain amount of credibility that came with that business. The business community bought into cognitive psychology. They, they, they saw the value we were connecting with, uh, for example, the business community's uh, interests, you know, and, and mm. back in the day, I mean, there were, there were things going on where, 
where American productivity was low and, and uh, Japanese productivity might have been high at a particular time. And, and there was interest in closing the gap. And, and I think that part of what we helped do was show that Western psychology, if understood correctly and applied correctly, was a, was a competitive advantage you know, to our society. And so that's all proven itself to be true over the years. You know, the way that you just said that, I think, is so, you know, um, a great way to describe the Pacific Institute's work is that the application of cognitive psychology was and is and continues to be considered a competitive advantage if you get it, you know, down to a fluency and mastery. Right. If we depart from the kitchen table for the moment and we come back to you know, the history and the stories of the Pacific Institute. And we've, you know, so far, if you haven't been uh, a graduate of the Pacific Institute or our curriculum, you probably may or not have a clear sense of what cognitive psychology is. And so let me, do you want to start there in terms of if you were explaining to somebody what is cognitive psychology, how would you express it and, and also second to that is why is why is it important well uh, cognitive psychology you know focuses primarily on the way that our thinking uh, affects our beliefs and our beliefs affect our behavior and of course behavior and performance are connected at the hip so uh, thinking uh, is uh, um, is sort of the key word here. Um, most of us, when we went to school, we, we, we didn't take courses on how, uh, how the mind works, uh, what the brain looks like, what, how, how the brain functions, you know, how, how, it, how it misfires. Uh, how, uh, most of us didn't have those courses, and I, and I see that still continues to this day. Uh, we're still playing catch up on learning about the mind and about the brain. Now, the the, the school of cognitive psychology is is maybe the least controversial school of psychology in terms. Or let's put it this way: it's the, the it's it's widely accepted that these these basic principles are a correct way to sort of look at thinking and look at behavior. And uh, the other thing that uh, is important in all of this is Back in the beginning, uh, this was the very, very early days of what's now become what's called positive psychology. And from the beginning, the Pacific Institute said, hey, what we're going to really concentrate on here is what's right with people, not what's wrong with people. Mm-hmm. You know, what are people like when they're happy, when they're successful, when they're achieving their goals, when they're creative? Uh, what's going on? And so cognitive psychology gave gives people and gave people has given people over the years a really basic uh, foundational understanding that uh, will allow them to sort of grow and improve and move to the next level, whatever, whatever that means. Yeah. Do you know, excuse me, just to add to that is that, you know, most of the people that I run into, Um, have a sense of, yeah, thinking does make a difference. And I also find that most people 
<clears throat> excuse me, are pretty knowledgeable about what was <clears throat> rooted in behavioral psychology. And so, you know, B.F. Skinner and Pavlov's dog is that if you look at that as a formula, <clears throat> hereditary, what you're born with, H, uh, times environment, E, equals behavior and performance. So what I found from people that most people are schooled on that, so they know the, the importance of positive and negative consequences. And, it, you know, when I think about the cognitive psychology, it's hard not to go back to sort of the, the godfathers of psychology and more specifically in my world, Viktor Frankl. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing that I admire about Frankl's, you know, book on man's search for meaning, because it started to articulate the difference between that performance and behavior isn't just you're not solely reliant on hereditary and environment he introduced you know the term which is now you know a big part of what i think we do is teaching people that they have a human agency and so human agency by definition is the ability for people to think independently of their environment so when we look at cognitive psychology as a formula in contrast to behavioral, behavioral was hereditary times environment equals behavior and performance. And what I think teachers and uh, thought leaders like Viktor Frankl introduced the idea that, no, that, that is true, that hereditary does make a difference, that environment does make a difference, but through his you know, study and his, you know, terrific, horrific experience in terms of Dachau concentration camp, he was able to understand that he could control his own thinking, he could control his human agency, and therefore mitigate to some degree the effect of the environment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, I think about Viktor Frankl and human agency as a key fundamental piece of, of what we do and why, you know, we think that that's significance. Because when we ask the people the question, can you control your hereditary? And for the most part in the history, that's not been true. Now with, with manipulation, I think we can do a little bit of that. Can you can control your environment? Well, to a certain degree you can, but there's a certain degree that you can't. But arguably the thing that of those three variables, human agency, hereditary and environment, the one thing that you can learn to control and get good at controlling is your human agency. How do you feel about that? And is yeah, that- I mean, for me, it, 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 it's really personal. Uh, I go back to my sports days, and uh, uh, as I moved up the levels of competitive athletics and then I found myself in the National Football League, I mean, there's – there you are, you know, you're with uh, the very best players in the world and it's super competitive. I, I know that when I went to training camp every year, uh, there were six positions uh, at defensive back, which was the position that I played. But every training camp, there would be 15 or 16 people there uh, competing for those six slots and they were all good athletes. Mm. Uh, they all had good her- heredity, so to speak. Mm. Uh, and, uh, the difference was mental, you know, uh, the difference was really mental. And of course it was sort of the 
the, the, the spirit and the commitment and the resiliency. And, you know, I, I consider those all mental, you know, in a way I, mm-hmm. I, I went to training camp every year with, with, with one book under my arm and it was psycho cybernetics by Dr. Mac- Maxwell Mar- Maltz. That was my first. Were you the sorry. weirdo, Ron? Huh? Were you the weirdo? No, nobody knew I had it except me. <laughs> I, I would, but I would read that book over and over again. And sort of the gist of that book was several things. Basically, it said, you know, you, you, you don't have to just physically practice. You can practice in your imagination. You can, and, and the book was about visualization and about how you can use that to become a better whatever, you know, better person, a, a, a better athlete. Whatever, and the thing is, is that uh, Maxwell Maltz was actually a plastic surgeon. Uh, mm-hmm. He was uh, uh, he was coming at it from a different angle. But one of the important points was this was science. This wasn't sort of something that was magical and mystical. There was a science behind why this worked. And yeah. now, after all of these years, the way that it's played out yeah. and what we know about neuroplasticity yeah. and, and, and all of that, it all makes sense. But, you know, my, my roots go back to, you know, using some of these concepts, these early concepts to just uh, survive in a really competitive environment. Yeah. Do you know, uh, I, I guess the question that comes up for me in that is it, it seems when you're in a, a transparent performance business like sports, you're really driven to because you're held so accountable to your performance that you're always looking for ways to improve. And so it, it appeared to me the, the, the earliest adopters to cognitive psychology were was sports. Is would that be your recollection too, Ron? Well, I think it was uh, one of the first. I mean, it was certainly an obvious one. Uh, I know uh, I first noticed it, you know, when I saw Olympic athletes, you know, that were doing mental rehearsal and were actually visualizing before they uh, did the ski slalom. uh, So, yeah, uh, that's my earliest recollection. And then I started pursuing it myself. Yeah. You said something that I think is really important for us to acknowledge. And, and it's one of the things that if we look at what am I proud of, of the work of the Pacific Institute, you know, I, I like the work that we've done historically in our body of work, our, you know, our 46 years of work, both in public and private sector, in corporations and in communities. So I'm really proud of that work, but I'm also very proud that we're diligent and dedicated to really anchoring what we do and what we talk about to thought leaders and and science. And, you know, I remember us inventorying uh, how many legitimate people had the Pacific Institute borrowed uh, copied, uh, you know, in, in Gary Latham's words, plagiarized in a humorous way, uh, how many of the thought leaders we looked at, and I think we tallied 175 thought leaders over the first 40 years. Yeah. And when we think about uh, Viktor Frankl, he was a pioneer in the world of what we work in. But there was other key influencers from our perspective. 
Does any of them come to mind, and, and if they do, why? Well, I think this is an important aspect of the Pacific Institute. You know, in terms of Viktor Frankl, you know, uh, Lou, Lou Tice actually met Viktor Frankl in Europe at a conference once, but uh, that was a big a moment for him. Uh, but Lou was very influenced by the same books that, that you were, Craig. Uh, uh, but the interesting thing about most of these dozens and dozens of thought leaders we got to know them personally. Uh, we went, you know, we reached out to Martin Seligman. We reached out to uh, Al Bandura. Uh, we reached out to the Gary Lathams, and we brought them to the Pacific Institute. And we developed dialogue with them about what they were teaching. And, and the thing is, is that, as Al Bandura told me once, you know, we're the researchers. Uh, but... Uh, it, there's a there's always been a lag between the research and the application. Pacific Institute and and, and Lou Tice is an educator. Uh, you guys are translators, and you're translating the research psychology into something that's applicable, educational, and you know provides access to way more people. So uh, a lot of people you know come to mind you know over the years. Uh, uh, you know, I, we, we had a chance to meet Warren Bennis, a uh, leadership guru from the University of uh, Southern California. Uh, I had a relationship with Marilyn Ferguson, which is, you know, more of a consciousness studies uh, person that influenced me a lot in the early days. Um, Tim Galway, the, uh, the, the man behind sort of the inner game of tennis, uh, and the, that that thinking, um, wow! It just uh, and you know more recently, you know, Dr. Tamabashi, you know, from uh, Japan, mm -hmm. was super influential, you know, to us uh, later on in 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 the, the the science, you know, and the perspectives that that he brought to the yeah. Pacific Institute. You know, you're triggering uh, I, again, sort of the reflection that I have on why our work has been credible, why our work has been valuable, uh, and just the, the inventory of thought leaders and, and academics that we've had the good fortune and good, you know, good opportunity to get to know and, and translate. So when we come back to that complex information translated in a way that a learner could get it, you know, there was sort of a win-win in many cases because sometimes the, the academics couldn't reach the people that we could reach. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast with the Pacific Institute. If you like what you heard today, click the like button or perhaps share this podcast with friends and family. For more information on TPI or how to get in contact with us, please visit www.tpikitchentable.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. See you next time at the kitchen table.